You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. But the blood of Jesus, nothing but the Good morning, Field Church. Welcome to worship this morning. I'm so grateful you decided to join us. Um, if it's your first time tuning in to one of our worship services, I want to introduce myself. My name is Pastor Chad Wiles. I'm one of the lead pastors here, and my main oversight is our biblical counseling ministry. Uh, we have the, the privilege, and I'm so grateful and thankful for the gift of our pastor, Sam uh, Srincioni, our other lead pastor who teaches us week in and week out serving us up the Word of God, um, teaching us expositionally, helping us see and understand God's Word and see His glory through His Word. And I get the privilege every six to eight weeks to come before you as uh, one of your pastors to tackle uh, counseling topics and issues that can be life-dominating for many of us and to help us see and seek the Lord in these areas to find freedom and hope uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'm gonna be tackling one of those topics to, to this morning. And um, the topic that I'm gonna be addressing is the topic of anxiety. Anxiety, as I've thought about this one, is, is one that is near and dear to all of our hearts right now. This topic is fitting during this time because we're in the midst of a global pandemic, something that I know in my lifetime, I've, I've never faced anything like this where the entire world is shut down and a sickness is spreading throughout um, all the countries. And I know many people are in fear, many people are struggling, and we're seeking hope for answers at this time. And I, I know that worry and anxiety are at an all-time high. Anxiety, though, however, is, is, although it's at a high right now, is very common to us as humans, something that we see as a very common issue in our world today, um, very common experience for people to struggle with, and it's even debilitating at times. Anxiety is an emotion characterized by feelings of tension. Um, those who struggle with it have a lot of worried thoughts and physical changes, even physical changes like blood pressure or panic attacks or things that can really um, cause someone to, to have a real low quality of life and a real struggle, and it can be a real hardship for many. Um, and I know many of you who are watching today um, feel and, and feel the effects of this issue of anxiety. We know that the research shows that general anxiety disorder affects 6.8 million adults. Uh, that's 3% of the U.S. population. Yet only 43.2 are receiving treatment right now. Many of us struggle with anxiety without any answers or knowing what to do with that. And we know that women are twice as likely to be affected by anxiety than men. Uh, many who struggle with anxiety also struggle with depression. And this is just talking about general anxiety disorder. We're not even talking about um, anything like PTSD or, or other uh, phobias or things of that nature. It's a much uh, greater number if we included all of that. And so I just wanted to spend some time today 
looking at this subject of anxiety, and I just want to talk about what is anxiety really? If we really think about anxiety, what's underneath this, this issue? And anxiety really is a mental exercise of fear. Our minds are full of what ifs. And we have things in this world that we're afraid of, things that we struggle with, things that we're worried about. And, um, and that's the reason why it's such a normal issue for us as humans because fear is a reality for us. Fear is always based in reality. It's a natural outflow of the human life. We're vulnerable. Uh, we're fragile. We know that there's only so much we can do to protect ourselves. There's so many things in this world, so many um, issues that we face and that can cause a lot of struggles and a lot of fears inside of us. We experience fear even at very young ages, even before we really understand that there's anything to really be afraid of. You know, as a kid, I remember being afraid of the dark, not even knowing why I'm afraid of the dark, just because it's different than light and I couldn't see. And so I, my imagination would run wild with, with visions of monsters under the bed or, or whatever the case may be. Fear has been a present reality for all of us ever since we were little kids. And fear has a real origin in fact. We know that fear originates in fact, right? There is real dangers in the world, things that we should be afraid of, things that can really hurt us or harm us, right? There are real dangers. I know when we first moved here, for me, something that, that was a real struggle uh, was alligators. You know, growing up in Kentucky, we don't have alligators in Kentucky. Uh, and I'm an, I love the outdoors. I love to fish. I love to hunt. I love to do all that kind of stuff. And so coming down here, there was just a lot of unknowns and just hearing stories about uh, attacks or knowing that there's a real possibility if you're near the edge of water, uh, me or my children, that if an alligator is lurking underneath who's hungry enough that day, really bad things could happen. And stories of things like that do happen. I remember in Disney World a few, year, a few years back when a little kid was uh, taken under um, because of an alligator that was in one of the, the lakes there. And so it's a real danger. And so it was one that had me very nervous about being in a place where alligators were in abundance. Um, and so it had me constantly on edge as I would go fishing, as I would uh, take my family out on the kayak, I would constantly be on edge wondering, thinking about it. Um, <clears throat> and so it was something that I should be afraid of, something that could cause me harm. And so that fear was a reality for me. I love what Ed Welch says in his book, Running Scared. He says, anytime you love or want something deeply, you will notice fear and anxieties because you might not get them. Anytime you can't control the fate of those things that you want or love, you will notice fears and anxieties because you might lose them. And that was true for me. The things that were causing me fears when it came to the subject of alligators, as an example, was the possibility of loss of a child or harm to me or my wife, right? But even though fear originates in a fact, we also know that fear grows in ignorance. Fear grows in ignorance. So when we first moved here, the reason why I was a little bit nervous was um, hearing some stories about alligators attacking car bumpers and coming out in the spring and just these crazy stories of just abnormal times of, of alligators attacking people or, or coming out 
um, into people's yards or homes or whatever the case may be. And so I started to have these irrational fears of, can I even let my kids play outside? I don't even live near water, but can they get to us here? I don't know. I don't understand what I should do, right? And so it just continued to grow. This fear continued to grow until um, we, I started to do some research. I started to get to know people who grew up here and, and they would talk me through just how they function and the realities of how alligators function and how to be safe and how to, how to go fishing and do things in a way that's safe. And we went on an alligator tour and learned more about them. And as I grew in fact and understanding some of the, the fears that had grown because of just ignorance and not knowing and never growing up around it, it started to subside. And, and since then I've, I've grown to understand more about them. And although I still have a healthy respect, I don't have the same type of fear in the same ways. Now, I will say this, side note, um, if you really want to have a fun story and have a good laugh, uh, go ahead and text my wife and ask her about her experience. The, one of the times we went kayaking with alligators, and it'll be a lot of fun, and this is my payback for her April uh, Fool's joke. So go ahead and do that for me if you would. Uh, all right, so today we're going we're gonna to look at just some of the instances in scripture where God through Christ calms our anxieties through and with truth about who he is. As we're educated in the truth, I pray that today our anxieties would, would be calmed and we would have courage and strength and, and peace that only comes from God. So let me pray for us and, and we'll dive into his word and see what he has to say to us. Father God, I just pray as we look into your word, as we understand what you have to say in your word, God, that you would give us peace, that you would help us understand who you are. Um, you would help us understand, God, how you protect us, how you provide for us, who we are in you in all those ways as we cast our cares upon you, you would give us a peace that's beyond understanding. Help us know you better, and see you greater through the scriptures today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to Matthew 6, verses 25 through 34. I'm gonna read this for us, and then we'll begin to walk through and understand the bigger picture of what God's trying to say to us here. So Matthew 6, 25 through 34, it says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So as we dig into God's word here, 
we got to look at the bigger context. So before we jump into this particular passage, we got to understand the bigger picture of what's happening here. What's going on in this moment that would shed light on the, the command here, of do not be anxious. Well, in order to understand this, we got to go back even to the beginning, right? Because we're looking at this bigger sermon here that's happening in Matthew 5 through 7 called the Sermon on the Mount. And this is Jesus coming through to fulfill something that is promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, 15. Where we sit in, see in 3, 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. God speaking to, to uh, Eve. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bru- bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And that's the first time we see God promise after Adam and Eve disobeys God in the garden and they eat of the tree of good and evil and disobey God where he told him not to do so. God in his mercy and his grace sets forth this promise of how one day there will come a son, a promised son who will come and defeat sin and death. And throughout scripture, we see what's referred to as antitypes or these foreshadowings of a coming savior they have the aspects of the prom- promised son, but they all fall short, right? They're, they're all sinful man. None of them fully fulfill the promised son that we see here in 3.15, right? We see Adam, the first man who fails in the garden. We see Noah and, and the ark, and we see Abraham and the promised uh, child through that God's gonna bring an entire nation. That promised child is Isaac, and Isaac brings about Jacob who becomes Israel, and through Israel, we see the 12 tribes of Israel, his 12 sons, two of them being Joseph, Joseph who goes forth and, and brings the people into Egypt and God raises them up in Egypt to, to um, deliver and sustain the people that he promised to Abraham. And through Judah, one of Israel's sons, would come the promised savior one day. We see, after that, we see Moses come about in Egypt as an as a antitype of the savior to lead people out of Egypt, out of the slavery of Pharaoh. Then we see Moses' servant Joshua rise up and become the next antitype of a savior who leads the people of Israel into the promised land. And after that, we see judges, we see Gideon, we see Samson, we see many judges in this time who are constantly coming to fight on behalf of Israel and, and protect this promised nation that God has promised. And there we see Saul. Saul becomes the first king. And then we see David. And through the line of David, we see Solomon. And one day... Uh, through all the kings, the line of, of Christ comes. And then we see Jesus. And the one constant that we see all throughout Scripture is that God himself never gives up on his promise for his own namesake. God never gives up on his promise to his people. And this gives us the, these types, gives us this beautiful roadmap of his overall redemptive plan linking the Old Testament to the new and fulfilling his promise that was set way back in Genesis 3 to be fulfilled through Jesus Christ for all of history. And now we have Christ. And in our passage today, we, we set the scene where in Matthew 4, right before we get to the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus go into the, into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And Jesus does what Adam cannot do. He defeats Satan. He's not, he doesn't succumb to the temptation. He becomes the better version of Adam, right? He fulfills that prophecy. He becomes... Uh, he is showing that he is the son. And now we see the Sermon on the Mount, uh, chapters five through seven, right? And this Sermon on the Mount harkens back 
to the book of Exodus where we see Moses, another antitype, leading his people through Israel all throughout Egypt and God displaying his power through, um, through Moses as he brings about the plagues in Egypt and, and, and brings Pharaoh to his knees so he would release the people from slavery. We see him parting the Red Sea. We see God meeting their needs through daily provision of manna and providing water from a rock, all leading to setting up camp in front of Mount Sinai where God would meet with Moses and give Moses the Ten Commandments and the law in which Moses would teach to Israel. Well, we see a similar picture in this time period of, of the Sermon on the Mount. Right, right before we get to this sermon, we see in Matthew 4, 23 through chapters 5, verse 1, he says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogue, speaking of Jesus, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them, right? Displaying his power, doing miracles, just like we see back in the story of Exodus. And we've seen lately as we've been walking through Luke in our Sunday sermons, the power of Jesus to heal the sick and to raise the dead, right? Jesus showing his power and great crowds, starting in verse 25, Great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, speaking of Jesus, he went up to the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came with him. See, Jesus is providing for them. People are coming and following Jesus. They're seeing miracles happen. They're seeing the power of God come and they're seeing this, this Savior, this Jesus, this God-man who's fulfilling all that they've seen all the way from Genesis, all the way into this point in redemptive history that Jesus is providing for them. He's doing miracles and healing and displaying the power of God because he's both God and man. See, he is without blemish. He's without um, a, a weakness like the rest of the antitypes who weren't able to fulfill the promise. Jesus is able to fulfill the promise completely, right? Being both God and man. And along their journey, they came to the mount where Jesus would sit and teach them. This Sermon on the Mount traditionally is, is thought to have taken place at Tabga near Capernaum on the ridge of hills uh, northwest of the town overlooking the Sea of Galilee. So just setting that scene, it wasn't a, a mountain, even though it's called Sermon on the Mount, it was more of a hill, but it overlooked the Sea of Galilee and this, it had this great ravine where people were able to sit and listen and hear Jesus teach. And the the Son of God was able to sit there and look at the people and teach them and teach them the law just like they had seen Moses. But there's a difference between what Jesus is teaching here and what Moses was teaching, right? Since Jesus is God and the fulfillment, and he is the fulfillment of the promise, he is speaking in terms of fulfillment. So when Jesus is addressing things that are similar to the old law, he's addressing them in ways of fulfillment. Right, we see in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Right, Jesus is saying, I'm coming to fulfill the law. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same 
will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not lowering the bar. He's raising it to show our lack of ability to keep the law and our need for him to fulfill the law on our behalf. See, Paul says this in Romans chapter 10, verse four, he says, for Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law, the fulfillment of it. And so he raises it to show that he needs to fulfill the law that we could never keep. So in this context, we find Jesus' words in our passage in, verse, in chapter six, verse 25. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. See, the reason I've spent this time to help us understand this entire context is so that we understand the magnitude of what Jesus is saying in this passage. This is a command, do not be anxious. A command that he expects us to follow. And we think to ourselves, how in the world can we not be anxious? How can we stop ourselves from anxiety, from feeling worried? We are fragile. We do have things to be afraid of. How could we stop that? We can only stop that with a backdrop of the one who is telling us is the one who came to fulfill the law and to save us and to be our strength and to give us salvation. That's why he can command us this way. Do not be anxious. And so we see that this commentary here on do not be anxious is not one of a flippant statement, but it's one of authority, a command. Smack dab in the middle of the most one of the most important sermons in history where Jesus is fulfilling the law and pointing us to the kingdom of God is this statement about anxiety. This deserves our undivided attention, right? And so when we see words like, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Words like, therefore, tell us that what came before it tied to it and is important for us to help understand it. And so let's go back just a few verses to verse 19. We'll read 19 through 24 to understand this portion first, which will then inform our main text today. So verses 19 through 24 of Matthew 6 say, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or, will he, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So we see this language of treasure. And treasure in this passage harkens to the idea of worship. This is worship language, treasuring. This is worship language. He's speaking of what you hope in, right? Do not seek for yourselves treasures on earth, but, for yourself, but seek for yourselves treasures on heaven. What do you hope in? What are you putting your hope in, right? What are you seeking? What are you spending your time and money on? What do you speak about most? What do you serve? This, this word of treasure 
is a is a language of worship, right? He's teaching us about worship. He's he's talking about worship right there. And then when he speaks of the eye, it's tied to the heart, and particularly our belief. Remember, the heart consists of three basic areas. We've talked about this before if you've been to our church. Um, but we see in Scripture, it speaks of three different areas. One, of our cognition, of our belief, of our thoughts. The Bible talks a lot about that. Uh, Romans 12, 1 through 2, talks about the renewal of our mind, right? Then we see our affections, right? Affections speaking about our desires, our emotions. James 4, 4 talks about why do we fight? Why do we quarrel? Why do we war against one another? We, we do that because we want what we want and we want it wrongly. We want it sinfully. Right, And then we also see the idea of our volition. Right, The Bible talks about how the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We see these three categories in terms of the heart. The heart is the real you. It's, it's who we really are. It's our thoughts, our beliefs, our, our affections, our emotions, our desires, our motives, our volition, our choices into action, right? And so when you are believing and worshiping the treasures of this world, your heart is darkened meaning you are separated from God. We see in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, he says, do not love the world or the things of, in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. See, if we can't love the world because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Harkening back to verse 23 there of how we see here, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness, right? If your mind, if your thoughts, if your heart is bad, your whole body will be full of, full of darkness. And if then, if the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness, right? And I can imagine as John was writing this passage here in 1 John 2, he was thinking about this sermon. He's thinking about what Jesus is saying here. He's thinking about how Jesus is talking about putting up treasures in heaven and not in this world. Jesus drives the point home even further to tell us, you cannot serve two masters. You have to choose. What you worship is what you're going to be about completely. You cannot have two masters. You're either going to serve money or God or serve whatever idol or God himself. You cannot have two masters, right? So we can conclude that Jesus' Jesus's command to not be anxious serves as a warning for us, right? Do not be anxious. He's warning us. Anxiety must be tied to the treasuring of something or someone other than God, right? And so we see anxiety is an indicator of idolatry in our hearts. Anxiety is an indicator of idolatry in our hearts. That's what Jesus is saying here. Don't be anxious because you're anxious because that you're treasuring something else. You have another idol. You have something else that you're putting your hope in other than me. Don't be anxious. Do not be anxious, right? Anxiety is focused on self-protection. Anxiety is focused on ourselves, our pride. It's focused on fear of loss, or usually something that is providing for us. We wanna build our own kingdoms. We wanna put things around us that we can trust in and hope in for ourselves. We don't wanna trust God. We wanna be able to trust in ourselves. We wanna be able to set up our own kingdom in a way that, that is protecting us and we don't need anyone else. We don't need to submit to another authority. 
Um, we need ourselves and ourselves alone. That's what idolatry is. Anxiety comes from a trusting in something or someone else other than God. This is the very definition of worship that harkens back to that first and greatest commandment that we see in Exodus uh, verses, uh, chapter 20, verses three through six. He says, you shall not have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Right? God warns us, in the Old Testament to have no other gods before him. And here we're seeing Jesus say the same thing. Don't put treasures in something other than God. Do not have other masters other than God. Make God first. Idolatry is when we seek out things that serve our deep motivational drives for control and approval and power and comfort that's put in us by God for his glory to, to be found in God. But then we put other things in place of God to serve ourselves and that never goes well. Idols are designed to serve us, but we make terrible gods. And we know inherently that gods, that the gods that we make never truly satisfy, making us need more and more until we're slaves to our own sin. Ephesians 2, Paul tells, um, tells us in verses one through three, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Idols promise everything, but in reality, they take away everything. That's what Jesus is warning against, right? It's gonna darken us completely. If your eye is bad, your whole body is bad and you'll be full of darkness. And if the light in you is darkness, how dark, how great is that darkness? Jesus is warning us. Our, our anxiety is warning us that there's something bigger going on inside of us. And so how do we begin to combat these idols of our hearts? If our anxiety is, a, is an indicator of worship, if it's showing us that there's something off in our hearts, how do we go about combating that? How do we go about discovering what that is? Well, we have to begin to ask honest questions. Honest questions about why we're feeling anxious and discover this, these sinful underpinnings of the heart of anxiety. We see Jesus do this, right? Anxiety is fought at the heart level. We see Jesus do this. He speaks to the heart. He starts to ask questions in verses 25 through 30. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, 
Oh, you of little faith. We see Christ ask these questions. He reveals some things in this section about their hearts and about our hearts. Right? The first thing that he reveals is a lack of trust in our position. Right? A lack of trust in our position. Where he asks that question, are you not of more value than they? Are you not of more value? Of what? Of the birds. Right? Are you not of more value than the birds of the air? The animals that he's created for, for beauty, but they're not created in the image of God. Right? Genesis 1, 26-31 says, when God made man, he said, let, the, let, us be, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea over the, and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves in the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And so we see God made man in his image. Are you not of more value than they? I've made you in my image. We are his image bearers. We're the ones that he put on the earth to have dominion, to be kings and queens over the earth, essentially, to rule and to reign uh, on his behalf and be his image bearers upon all the earth to spread his glory so people could see God and know God and see the glory of God through us. We are his children. We are the only creature in creation created in the image of God and in his likeness. Don't you know that you're more valued than they? And so this reveals a lack of trust in our position. Number two, it reveals a lack of trust in God's goodness. That same question, are you not of more value than they, leads to which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his, to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? God is, Jesus is speaking about God's goodness that he would clothe the lilies of the field, that he would feed the birds, he would give the creatures of the world what they need. And we're created as an image. Don't you know God is a good God? God is a God who cares for us, who is perfectly good. He doesn't operate like us. We have a hard time trusting the goodness of God because we have a hard time trusting men and our own goodness inside of our own hearts. I know it's true of me. I'm suspicious of others usually because of the sin in my own heart because I know that I'm not good. I'm not perfectly good. I fail. I don't deliver in the ways that I should deliver. But that's not God. God always delivers upon his promises. God always uh, is there for us. He's always good. And so we see the lack of trust in our position as he asks these questions. 
we see the lack of trust in God's goodness. And lastly here, we see the lack of trust in God's control. A lack of trust in God's control, right? Verse 28, and why are you anxious about clothing? Or, sorry, verse 27. And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? We don't have any control over our life. Anxiety, the, the exercise of worry, the exercise of anxiety is an exercise of futility. Not a single one of us can add anything to our lives by worrying. We don't protect ourselves from anything. We don't add anything to our lives. It is an exercise in futility that only hurts us. And, and, God, and Jesus is saying here, why are you anxious? What are you going to do about it? Don't you know that God is the one who's providing all these things? He's the one who's providing for the birds. He's the one who's providing for the lilies of the field. He's the one who's going to provide for you. He's the one in control. His grander story is happening. His redeeming story is happening. His, the reason why he created you, the purposes that he has for you, he's bringing about. He is in control. He is good. And he is providing for the one that he created in his image. That's what he's showing us here. And he ends with, oh, you of little faith. And he's, with that question, he's, I think he's hearkening to a few things. I think he's saying, have you forgotten? I can just see as he, oh, oh, you have a little faith. Like, have you forgotten? There's nothing wrong with being wise. Nothing wrong with being diligent and working hard and doing the things that we need to do. Even though God is the one providing the food for the birds, the birds get up, they go, they catch the worm, they build their nest. They, they are working, they are, they are working hard, but they don't worry about tomorrow if they will, they will be able to find their food. They don't worry about if they'll have the straw to build their nest. They know that God is providing those things. They're there. They just do it, right? They're not anxious about it. But for us who are created in the image of God, we forget that God has provided the things that we need to live a faithful life to him, right? We have forgotten. We've forgotten who we are. We've forgotten our position. We've forgotten that we're created in his image. We've forgotten that we're created for his glory, We've forgotten that the purpose of our life is to know God and to display God to others, right? And he's saying, have, have you forgotten that I made you? Have you forgotten my love for you? Have you forgotten that I'm making all things new? But I love how God always answers our fears and anxieties. He always answers our fears and anxieties in the re, with a reality and a reminder of himself and who he is. Right? Anytime we see fear in Scripture, which it's the most, the thing that comes up most throughout all of Scripture, um, he always answers the reality of fear with the reality of himself. Right? I'll show you a few examples. Deuteronomy 31.6, he says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Look what he says. It is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. He's, he's telling a truth about himself. You don't have to be afraid. Be strong and courageous because I'm with you. I'm fighting for you. I'm not going to leave you or forsake you. Joshua uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, as Joshua's be, uh, beginning to think about his task of leading the Israelites into the promised land, he's, he's afraid. And so God comes to him, and here's what he says. He says to Joshua, once again, be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. 
Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Right here, God gives Joshua these basic commands. Don't forget my law. Meditate on my word day and night. Don't let it depart from you. Remember my character. Remember who I am. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. For remember, the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He's reminding Joshua of of his presence, his power, and the fact that he has went before him. He is already conquering the task that, that he's given Joshua. He's already went before and, and defeated the enemies before Joshua even started. He's reminding him of his presence. We see Isaiah 41, verses, and verse 10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Once again, God reminding that he is the one that's going to strengthen us. He's the one that's going to help you. He's the one who's going to uphold with his righteous right hand. We can do nothing. Who's going to add anything to our days by being anxious? None of us. We have no power. We are vulnerable. We are fragile. But our God is powerful. Our God is with us. Our God is the one who's going before us. He's the one who's strengthening us. Jesus says in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. What powerful language. Jesus has overcome the world. We're going to face trial. We're going to face tribulation. There are things for us to, to be concerned about. And on our own, we are powerless to fight them. But Christ has overcome the world. What a great promise for us. And so we see these same things here in this passage, right? Are you not of more value than they? You're valuable to me is what God's saying there. Verse 30, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you? God is with us. He's reminding the people here and reminding us. He is with us. He's calming the anxieties by reminding us of who he is, right? And so we've seen that anxiety is an indicator of idolatry in our hearts and that anxiety is fought at the heart level. We have to get into our hearts and dig out what's in there and understand the idols that we're seeking for our comforts or for our provision or seeking to build up ourselves, right? And number three, we see that peace comes from hope in Christ alone. Peace comes from hope in Christ alone. Right? And so we see that question again back in verse 25. I want to remind us here. He says, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? It's an important question for us to ponder right here. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? That's a perplexing question because... Of course, we need food to survive. We need clothing 
right? No one wants to see that. So you do need clothing. <laughs> um, but we need things like food and clothing. Those are the basic needs of life. So life is more, but life is more than these basic needs that we feel like we need more than anything else, right? And Jesus asked that question because he's hearkening to that there is something more important than survival in this life. See, we have to understand that, va- that value, that we have to understand and value God for the treasure that he is in order to have peace that we long for, right? We have to understand and value God. We have to see that he is of greater worth and greater value than the things of this world, even our basic needs uh, for, <clears throat> for us to treasure him in order that we may have peace that we long for. See, suffering may and likely will happen at some point in your life. That is going to happen. It may be catastrophe. It may be at smaller levels, but all of us have hardships. All of us have ups and downs. And the reality is this is not promising. This passage is not promising. Don't be anxious because I'm going to prosper you and make you have an easy life. That is not what this passage is saying. He's saying don't be anxious because there is something more and just this life to have hope in, right? And he tells us in verse 33 of what that hope is. He says to seek first, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first. Seek first the kingdom of God. That seek first harkens back to that first commandment once again, to have no other gods before me. Do not put anything above me. But seek first my kingdom. It's not saying that you don't need food. It's not saying that you don't need clothes. It's not saying that there aren't certain needs in life that God's going to be there and provide. He's already said that. <clears throat> but what he's saying is of a for, of, that what's of first importance is his kingdom. What's of first importance is God himself, right? We have to have a kingdom perspective and an eternal perspective, Right? So what makes God's kingdom glorious is God himself. It's his presence. The greatest thing about salvation, the greatest thing about the gospel is not that we are saved, it's that we get God. It's that heaven is full of God's presence. We get to be restored back into our creator, our God who created us for a purpose to know him, to glorify him, to see him, and to display him to others. That's the greatest thing about it. And when we see God in his full glory and we learn to treasure him and see the value that he is that's of surpassing worth that we can't even wrap our heads around, then this life doesn't become the most important thing that we're worried about. That knowing him and seeing him is what's most important. We see this displayed in Isaiah chapter six. It's one that we love around here. We have a song about it. Our services are built off of it uh, in the way that we worship. And I wanted to bring us to Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 5, to see the display of God's glory. Right? It says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to the other, saying, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. Woe is me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips 
And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Look at that. The angels, God's glory was so great that they would fly, covering their face and their feet so that they couldn't see God because probably just the sight of God would have destroyed them because of how powerful and his majesty and how great his glory really is. And the only thing that they could say, their whole task, their whole existence was to fly around saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And when Isaiah sees that, he has one response. I'm undone. Woe is me. Woe is me for I'm a man. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah, a prophet, one of the greatest men that had ever lived comes before God and his only response is to say, I am nowhere near your greatness. Your glory surpasses anything I could think of. You are worthy of all worship and I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And if we read further in that passage, he goes on to respond in a way of going forward to spread the good news of the, of the gospel to go and to spread the message of God. And that's the way that we should respond. There's an already but not yet truth that we get to be a part of. The beauty of the gospel is that we can have a relationship with God now through Christ. And then we can long for the day that we get to go be with God forever in heaven. The reality of an eternal life with God must be your greatest hope in order to have peace and joy in this life now. It must be your greatest hope. We see Paul display this in his life in, in Philippians verse, uh, in chapter one, verse 18 through 23, he says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life <clears throat> or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If, I'm a, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My, de my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. Look at Paul's wrestle. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. Paul understood this, this point that God is much greater, and, and he had this eternal perspective that, listen, to live is Christ. I'm gonna be here. I'm gonna spread the word of God. My job, my duty, my hope, and my, my comfort, and my motivation for living is to spread the word of Jesus, to spread the good news of the gospel. That's what he was doing. When Paul was writing this letter, he was in prison, and he was rejoicing, if you read just a little bit before this, of how the prisoner, the jailers and the guards were coming to know Jesus because of Paul being there. He's sitting there spreading the good news and writing letters to the church. And he's saying, listen, to live is Christ. This is, this is okay. I'm in a, a struggle. I'm in a trial. I'm in a jail cell. It's not the greatest uh, place to be, but I'm getting to do the duty that God has given me to do. It is my joy to spread the gospel. And Paul was rejoicing in that, right? He says, yes, I will rejoice. But then he says, to die is gain. Listen, 
Paul's not trying to die. He's not in some suicidal mindset. He's just saying, this life is temporary. And I know that one day when I do go, when God decides it's my time, I'm going to be with God. And that's way better. If you're watching this, church, if you're listening, maybe it's for the first time, we have to begin to see God for who he truly is. That he's much better, a far surpassing worth than what this life has to offer. Our lives are meant for a purpose of bearing God's image and showing the world his glory throughout all the earth. That's our joy. And God gives us everything we need to do that. Right? This passage is telling us this. See, the thing that I want us to understand is that there is a reality of death that we all have to face. We may spend our lives trying to ignore it or pacify it and push away that thought. But in times of struggle and in times like now in a pandemic, we are brought into a place of reality. The reality is even if we live a long, healthy life, what do we have, 80, 90 years? That's it. No one escapes the reality of death. And, there, it, and when we're faced with, with that reality, when we're faced with those possibilities, it makes us sober-minded. It makes us begin to contemplate why we even exist in the first place. Is there more? But I tell you, my greater concern is that some of you may not realize your reality of spiritual death, which is far greater. See, the reality of physical death is true for everyone. But it's also true that at one point for everyone, the reality of spiritual death is also true. Romans 6.23, Paul says this, For the wages of sin is death. Wages meaning something that you earn. Because of our sin, because of the first man, Adam and Eve, who sinned, sin came into the world. And, and Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And for the wages of that sin is death. That, that's not just a physical death that we all have to face, but that's speaking of a spiritual separation that, are, that results in an eternal reality of separation from God in a place called hell, where God's present does, presence does not exist. That's a true reality. And that should cause a right fear inside of us. That's a true statement. That because of sin, that eternal reality for some is a separation from God. My fear is that you would live this life building your own kingdom completely unaware of the hopelessness that you are living in and the impending doom that awaits. And I just ask you to please consider what you're hearing in the scriptures. Please consider it. It's more than just being anxious, that there's a real fear here. And I pray that that fear produces a sober-mindedness and that it will produce a repentance because the second part of that verse is hopeful, right? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, salvation comes as we seek and receive Christ as Savior. Jesus is the Son who redeems. Remember, we're seeing this 
played out in a backdrop of Jesus coming and fulfilling all the promise that one day there would come the son who would crush the head of the serpent, right? Who would redeem us all, who would defeat sin and death. And Jesus is that savior. And so we can trust in that, that through him, we can have eternal life, that that doesn't have to be the reality for us, that that impending doom, that death, that separation from God does not have to be a reality for any of us. And that's a free gift that we, anyone who would put their faith and hope in Christ and see him as more valuable in the treasure and know him as savior and trust in him as Lord will be saved. John 14, six, Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, Jesus is saying these things knowing what is going to come. Jesus lives a perfect, perfect life fulfilling every prophecy as a son of God so that he could die on our behalf, that he might bring us to God. 1 Peter 3.18 tells us this, that for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. Christ comes to make us alive in the spirit, right? He suffered for the sins of all so that all of us could be saved and know him and have that eternal hope. So that brings us back to verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God. That's what that means. Seek him, treasure him, seek God, for his righteousness, and all these things will be added. Listen, everything else is secondary. Seek first the kingdom of God. Put God first. Make him the treasure of your life. See him in the place of value that he is. Worship him as the God that he is. And humble yourself so that you may draw near to him. So we know that peace comes from a hope in Christ alone. But as we end, I want us to think about this last little bit. Number four is continual peace comes through a daily pursuit of God. Continual peace comes through a daily pursuit of God. Verse 34 tells us, therefore, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This language here makes us think back to the idea of manna that God provided when the Israelites were, were following Moses. Exodus 16.4 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Every day, God would rain down manna, and it would only be for that day. You couldn't keep it. It would spoil. But every single day, he would bring what they needed. He would bring just enough for their fill to keep them throughout the desert. That's what he's saying here. Look, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We got what we got today. And God has given us what we need today, right? God never changes. He knows what we need and he gives us what we need. And God wants us to be dependent upon him because it shows him to be God and that we're not. 
and it produces worship in us. I'm so grateful that I'm able to trust the Lord, that I'm able to, that I'm able to seek Him and see Him. I'm grateful that He is good and He's in control. I'm grateful that He would send His Son, Jesus, to pay the penalty for the, the sin that I deserve and defeat sin and death so that through faith in Him, I may know Him and that you may know Him. I'm grateful that God provides what we need. God is a good father to his children. So church, as we end today, I want to I want to end by reciting the words of Paul in Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Paul says this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Church, my prayer for you is that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, as you pursue Him, as you read His Word, as you pray, as you look to him and you find him, that he would produce this peace that surpasses all understanding and it will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, I'm thankful for your word. God, I pray that anything that, that I've spoken that isn't true or isn't helpful, God, would be easily forgotten. But God, I pray that the truth of your word that you have been bringing about this redemptive story since the beginning of time, that you've been faithful to pursue your children, to pursue us, and to make a way for us to know you. And God, I pray that we would find a deeper love and hope for those um, who know you, God, that we would we continue to humble ourselves more and more and, and seek you first every single day and look to you as our God and our Father. And for those who are listening today and do not have a relationship with you, God, that you would open their eyes to the truth of their sin, but also to the truth of the gospel, that you've paid for that sin through Jesus, and he's defeated sin and death, and through Christ, they could be made new, and they would place their faith in you, God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.